podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Have you been listening? Do you know what sport we're actually playing? Whoa, 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 whoa. I was number nine. Don't be putting me down at number 11. Back in the day, I defeated Dwayne The Rock Johnson twice. The Paralympics almost has more power than the Olympics ever will be. I'm not really a fun kind of guy. doesn't really like people. Come on then, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic teenagers who interview some of the biggest names within the world of sport. From world champions, World Cup winners, international athletes, Ryder Cup golfers, Ashes heroes and many other sportsmen and women, we delve deep into their sporting career, the highs and the lows and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. But that's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, Tom and Avatar, who host the podcast, and I'll let them introduce today's guest. See you later. Techno Woods School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Join us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is an England cricketing great. He played over 150 times for England, scoring over 9,000 international runs and is now a Sky Sports commentator. Welcome to the podcast, Michael Afferton. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Good to talk to you. We like to start our podcast with some quick fire questions. Are you ready? Fire away. Favourite place to go on holiday? Favourite place to go on holiday, New Zealand. Uh, Favourite food? Uh, Curry. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? The most famous person in my phone book? Um, God, I don't know. Do I have any famous people in my phone book? Well, cricketers, Joe Root, say. I suppose he's pretty famous these days. If you could trade lies with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? I would like to be a film director for a day. So let me say Sam Mendes, a great, great British film director who directed one of the, not the most recent Bonds, but the Bond before that. So maybe I'd swap with him for a day. When you were a child, did you always want to be a cricketer? Well, I always loved the game right from the start. Um, You know, my dad played club cricket. I remember watching him as a, five, six-year-old intently from the boundary edge and I played, you know, forever. So I always loved the game. I didn't really think about playing professionally until I was maybe 16, 17. So it took a long time before that kind of ambition came, but I always loved playing. So, yeah, I mean, I I always knew that I was going to play the game. It's just I didn't really think I could play it professionally. You were very successful at school boy level what are your memory memories of playing cricket as a teenager so I started uh my little club side which I lived north of Manchester so uh, I had I joined a club called Woodhouses when I was very young six seven and started playing there I went to a junior school called Briscoe Lane Primary School which is in Newton Heath in Manchester and we had a cricket team and played there and then the secondary school I went to, the the, the kind of uh, senior school, was Manchester Grammar School. Um, and we had a good team there. We only lost one game in about six years, I think. 
So I was very lucky to have to go to schools where there were cricket teams, cricket pitches, and teachers who you know were prepared to give up time to to help us to play. So count myself very lucky. You make your Lancashire. Is it debut? Debut in 1987. What was that like? Well, I, I, I was at university. So what happened was I went to university in 1987 and I signed what they would call now a rookie contract. I suppose it was called a summer contract then. So that allowed me to go to university until about July when university finished. And then I joined Lancashire for the second half of the summer. But the advantage I had was that the university I went to, which was down in Cambridge, played first-class cricket. So I, I happened to be in the fortunate position of already having played some first-class cricket for the university, and I was doing well. So when I went back to Lancashire, I virtually got straight into the team. So that we're talking about July 1987. And my debut came at a place called Southport, which was one of Lancashire's outgrounds. So Lancashire played Old Trafford mainly. But they have a number of grounds like Southport, Lytham, Blackpool, where they play some games. And my debut came at Southport against Warwickshire. Um, it, it was a very dodgy pitch. The game finished in two days. Uh, we beat Warwickshire comfortably, a very low scoring game. And I managed to get 50 uh, with a good friend of mine, Neil Fairbrother, who's at the other end. He got a few as well. Um, and that was kind of uh, the key partnership in that game. But I remember I wasn't driving and my mum had to take me to the game. Um, it was quite a long drive from where we lived in Manchester. I was pretty nervous um, playing against some really experienced cricketers. So there was a chap for called Dennis Amis, who was a great former England batsman who'd scored 100 hundreds. So, you know, it was quite a nerve wracking thing. But I did OK. Uh, and then I basically stayed in the side. Um, through the next two or three years of university and then was playing for England about two years later. Two years later, you made your debut for England against Australia. What was that like to make your debut? Well, I was pretty young, so i just finished university. So we're looking at now August 1989. I was only 21. It was a funny thing. The, the, the only reason I played, really, was that there was a, a, a rebel tour to South Africa that got picked in that summer. So quite a few England cricketers signed up for a tour to South Africa. South Africa was still banned because of apartheid. It meant that the cricketers who'd signed up for the tour no longer were available to play for England. So the selectors were looking for a new side, basically. And I was pretty young, I'd been doing all right. Um, so I got picked, but I was very, very young and inexperienced, really. I didn't, you know, I just, I learned about test cricket on the job. I didn't really know very much about it. So we were playing against Australia. The game was at Trent Bridge uh, in Nottingham. I remember clearly checking into the hotel. I was quite superstitious then. And I remember in the hotel room, in the bath, there was a yellow duck on the bath. And I just thought, this is a bad sign. It's a bad sign if there's a yellow duck uh, in my bathroom. And sure enough, I, I got a duck in my first innings. Then there was a rest day. So in those days, it's so long ago now, I used to have rest days in test matches. So the Sunday was a rest day. So I, I ended up sitting on a, a pair, pair of ducks for a couple of days. 
But I got 40-odd in the second inning, so did all right then. Um, and that was my first taste of Test cricket, really, against a pretty good, experienced Australian team, and they were much better than us. At the age of just 21, when you made your England debut, you had some big characters in the dressing room, such as Mike Gatting, Jack Russell, Graham Gooch and Ian Botham. What was it like to be one of their teammates and were they nice to you? They were, and you're right. I mean, I think that's the hardest thing for a young player coming into the England dressing room. As I say, I was 21. I'd not been around that long. I'd never met these people before. David Gow was the captain. Ian Botham was playing. These were great, great England cricketers. And I'd never met them. I didn't know who, you know, I didn't, hadn't met them. I'm not sure they even knew who I was. Um, and bizarrely, David Gower, I remember when I was about 10, my dad had called me in from playing in the back garden to watch David Gower's first ball in test cricket. And then, you know, about 10 years later, he was the captain of England giving me my first test cap. So that was a weird experience. They were all very nice, very welcoming. And I think the biggest thing for you as a young player, if you go into an England dressing room, 21 years of age, not very, you know, experienced and stuff. I think the biggest thing is just to get the respect of your teammates, people like Gower and both, and who played 100 tests at this point, and just make sure that they recognise that you can play. So get try and get their respect and then you know, you have a good chance of, of becoming an established England player. But they were all very sweet, very nice, um, and they became good friends. The 90s was a period of dominance for Australia. What are your memories of the Ashes during your career? <laughs> Bad ones, mainly. Um, you're right, Australia were a very good side. I mean, a great side, really. Probably in the whole history of the game, there have been three great, uh, cricket teams, Don Bradman's 1948, and they were called the Invincibles. The great, great West Indies team that was dominant from about the late 1970s to the mid-1990s. And then after that team came Australia, who were dominant for about 15 years of their own and had many great players, Steve Waugh, Shane Warne, all these guys. So they were basically better than us throughout the 1990s. I mean, we, we won some games and we had some tight contests but when push came to shove, they were a little bit better and they had better players. And in a five-day game, in a test match, the best team tends to win out. It's not like a T20 game now where the shorter the contest, the more even um, the game, if you like. It brings the, the less good side into it because a shorter contest, anybody can win it. But in a test match stretched over five days, the best teams will generally win more often than not. And in the 1990s, Australia were the best team. So we had some good players as well. We weren't a bad side. You know, we beat, in my time as an England player, we beat every other country in a test series, but we just couldn't manage to beat Australia. He was the best bowler you ever faced, and why? So I'll break it down into spin and seam because it's quite difficult to compare spinners and seamers. So the best spinner of my generation was Shane Warne, I think. Um, he was a brilliant spinner, spun it the ball a long way, very canny, very clever, a great competitor, um, 
if I don't know whether you, you're too young, you lads, but the 2005 Ashes series when England finally beat Australia in England, um, even then when Australia were under the cosh, I thought, you know, that showed the greatness of Shane Warne, his, his competitiveness and his brilliance. And then fast bowlers, I was lucky or unlucky, whichever way you want to term it, to play against so many great fast bowlers. From the West Indies, you had Kirtley Ambrose, Malcolm Marshall, Courtney Walsh. Australia had Glenn McGrath, Jason Gillespie, Merv Hughes, Craig McDermott. Pakistan had Wazi Makram, Waka Yunis. South Africa, Alan Donald, Sean Pollock. I mean, every country, India, Srinath and, and Prasad, every country had really top-class fast bowlers. Um, of them all, I would pick out a couple. Malcolm Marshall and Wazi Makram were brilliant bowlers, fast, swung it both ways, could do lots of things with the ball, and they were fantastic. I remember um, just before this interview, I watched uh, the highlights of the series against Africa. Alan Donald bowling at you, and he bowled a very vicious, nasty spell at you. What are your memories of that game? Well, it was a, it was a, it was in nineteen ninety eight, and the game you're talking about was at Trent Bridge. So it was a very tight series. We were one nil down. There were two tests to play, and the te- the game at Trent Bridge reached its kind of crucial moment on the Sunday evening when we needed about I don't know two hundred and fifty to win. I was in with NASA saying, and Hansi Cronje threw the ball to Alan Donald, and that was the key moment really. If if they'd have got me and Nasser out at that point. South Africa probably would have won the match in the series. So Donald bowled a very, very fast spell. Um, somehow managed to survive it. There was a lot of bouncers flying around, quite a few verbals. I'd glove one to the keeper and wasn't given out. Got a fortunate decision from the umpire. So there was lots happening. It was very dramatic. Full house, live on telly, you know, millions of people watching. Um, and fantastic, really. I mean, Donald bowling at I don't know, probably mid-90s, 95 miles an hour, very, very fast. So you have about 0.4 of a second to react when the ball is coming down. You don't really have time to make a decision and, and, and see the ball, but you just play on instinct and, and hope to get lucky. At the age of 25, you became England captain. What are your memories of becoming captain and what sort of captain were you? Well, I was young. Uh, you're right, 25 is pretty young to be captain in England. I don't think... Too many people have done it at a younger age. Um, and it was probably too young. You know, I didn't really know that much by 25. I'd played probably 20-odd tests. So I was quite a reasonably experienced, but not very experienced. We'd had a, a tricky run just beforehand. I think England had lost eight out of nine games or something, and Graham Gooch had decided to resign. That's always the way. Captain always steps down when things are not going well. So you always inherit a slightly dodgy time. Um, what kind of captain was I? I don't know. It's not really, it's kind of hard for me to say. You'd have to ask probably people who played under me. But I certainly tried my best, gave it my all over four years, four and a half years. Did some things wrong, could have done many things better, did some things right. Um, tried my all, gave it my best. I wasn't quite good enough for, for some of the time. And I think as a captain and as a leader, you have to try and most of all get the respect of your players in the way that you handle them, the way that you treat them, 
try and show some honesty, get some respect back and hopefully find a way. Cricket is a funny game. It's a team game, but it's really an individual game as well. You know, when you're standing there with the bat in your hand or ball in the hand, you're on your own. So you have to, the art of leadership, I think, is giving enough space to allow individuals to flourish and enough space to allow individuals to be themselves so that they can play at their best at the same time as getting the team pulling together in the same direction. So that balance between individual freedom and expression and teamwork, I think, is the art of leadership in cricket, which is a, which is a unique game. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace and mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation, consultations and quotations. So give us a call today. You were fined £2,000 in South Africa. Why did you get fined? Well, I got fined. It was in. It was at home, actually. It was at Lords against South Africa in a, in a test match in 1994. Uh, the actual reason was for the match referee said I wasn't being truthful with him. It was over uh, allegations of ball tampering in a test match at Lords against South Africa. Um, I'd quibble with the match referee, but I took the fine. It was £2,000 at the time, and I paid up. You must have seen lots of pranks and jokes during your time as an England player. Who were the best at playing pranks, and what was the best prank? So we had some good lads in the team. Darren Goff was great fun, and Phil Toffinell, and, and, and lots of players who were great fun to play with. Um uh, the best prank uh, you had you had David Lloyd on didn't you last week or a couple of weeks yeah, ago yeah. or something yeah we've had him on yeah. uh, he was our coach and we played the last game of the season for Lancashire we 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 played a prank on him by cutting off all the buttons on his shirt um putting holes in his socks holes in his pockets so when the, the last ball of the season was done and we all got to come to get changed in the dressing room he started to get changed and suddenly realised as he tried to do his shirt button up, one button fell off, then the next button fell off, and then he put all his buttons in his pockets and they fell through his trousers and hit the floor. <laughs> so um, that caused a bit of hilarity, although he wasn't that happy, I have to say, at the end, and he was the coach of the team. Um, but we, we had a lot of fun down the years. Uh, your friend David Lloyd was England co- coach, then you were captain. What was he like as a coach? He was great coach to play under. Um, he was good fun. And I think you, you have to have fun as a, as a team in, in, in cricket or any sport. I mean, you're playing sport and it should be fun, but it's not always fun because it's difficult. And, you, you know, you, if you're losing a test match or losing a series, you get a lot of criticism and you feel under pressure and sometimes that fun can drain away. So it's good to play for somebody who's got a sense of humour. Bumble had a great sense of humour, but he was a top-class coach as well. He'd been a good player himself. He played for England, played many years for Lancashire. 
He'd umpired, he'd coached junior teams, he'd coached England under-19 teams. He knew everything about the game. He was very uh, inspirational to play under, knew the game inside out, was good fun, and I enjoyed playing with him, as I've enjoyed commentating with him since. Yeah, we spoke to Bumble, I think, two weeks ago, and and he recalls, or he's, he, we asked him that question, what type of coach was he? And he said he was kind of like Alex Ferguson. And he recalls one time in Australia against Australia A when you were captain. And he, he said, you declared when you shouldn't have declared. And he, at the end of the game, he was having a go at you all. And Darren Goff came in dressed as Father Christmas. <laughs> that right. It was a terrible game, actually, at Hobart in Tasmania playing against Australia A. And I, I don't know why I was captain, because it was years after I'd given up the captaincy. But I think... Alex Stewart, who was the, the captain of England then, wasn't playing in the game. And his vice-captain, Nasser Hussain, wasn't playing in the game. So for some reason, I was captaining. And I said a ridiculous declaration on Australia A, romped home. And Bumble was absolutely furious and fuming at the end of the game. And it was just before we were due to go to Melbourne to play a test match there. And he was tearing the strip off us in the dressing room and me. And then Goffey bounced in in a far... I don't know why he was dressed in a father Christmas outfit, but it wasn't that long before Christmas because the Melbourne test is always Christmas Boxing Day. So it must have been in the run-up in the run-up to the Christmas period, but Goffey bounced in and everybody just fell about laughing. It was probably a good, a good thing to do at that point because we were getting a little serious. People say that your best performances were when your back was against the wall. A standout was your... 185, not out to get a draw against South Africa. Why do you think you perform so well under pressure? Um, good question. I don't know why I did, um, except to say that I think if you play a lot of test matches for your country, and I've played 100 and something, you, you don't play that many games. And test cricket is quite a tough game. It is a very grueling, demanding game physically and mentally. And I don't think you play that many games without being reasonably tough. And I don't mean tough as in, you know, I could step into a ring with Tyson Fury or something. I mean tough in a in a kind of mental, mental way. You just you know, you when it's when the going gets tough, when it when you're under pressure, you just find a little bit extra to keep yourself going. And anybody who plays that amount of test cricket is, is that kind of person because you can't survive in test cricket without having a thick skin or, or a sense of toughness. So I don't know, I just I just managed to dig deep from time to time and find find something. And it's both physical and mental test cricket is very physically draining. So that innings you were talking about at Johannesburg lasted 10 and a half hours or nearly 11 hours or something spread over two days. So it's, it's a grueling physical thing, but you know, when you're facing Alan Donald and Sean Pollock and they're bowling nearly a hundred miles an hour and there's a full house in very noisy, very aggressive crowd in Johannesburg and you're coming out for the second innings with five sessions ahead of you and you're about 350 behind in the game. It's, it's tough and you just got to dig deep and, and find 
find a bit of toughness there yourself. I, I can't explain how, how you do it. You've either, I think you've either got it in you or you haven't. And that's, that's just how it is. When we did our research for this interview, we discovered that you had lots of nicknames such as the Cockroach, Dreddy and FEC. Can you tell us what they mean, please? <laughs> well, well, as you know, Wikipedia is kind of one of those things where half-truths uh, <laughs> seem to get in. I mean, I can't ever remember anybody calling me cockroach, but, you know, uh, it, it's on Wikipedia, so I don't know. Dreddy was a name that came early on in Lancashire, and I don't know why. Uh, but still some of my Lancashire teammates from those early days called me that. Most people just call me Athers. FEC uh, was one of those um, things. It was, people think it stood for future England captain, which it can do. And when I, very early on in my Lancashire days on my locker, Paul Allett, who was a quite an experienced Lancashire bowler, he scrolled FEC on there. And people assumed it stood for future England captain. It, we'll leave it at that. I'm not sure on this <laughs> Zoom or this podcast I can really say what it stood for, but future England captain will do. <laughs> <laughs> you retired from playing cricket in 2001. Why did you decide to retire? I'd had enough, really, and two reasons. Uh, one, I played throughout my career with a condition called ankylosing spondylitis, which is like an inflammatory condition and it affects you in various areas and particularly in your back. And I played with it throughout my career. I'd taken anti-inflammatories every day, which is a kind of, you know, a tablet to kill the inflammation. And they were, they'd had bad side effects. I'd had numerous cortisone injections into my back and the surgeon, basically, who used to give me the injections every six months, said, I can't give you any more. If I give you any more injections, you know, it's going to damage you. So I was 33. I was quite young, but basically, physically, had come to the end of the road. And after playing 115 tests in a short period of time, I was, I was pretty tired, actually. Um, it would have been nice to have played a career without injury problems, without having to take anti-inflammatories every day without cortisone injections, without pain. And, you know, there was, I can't remember a day where I didn't play with, with, without pain. It would have been nice to have that, but sometimes, you know, that's the hand you're dealt and you have to, you have to just kind of get on with it and, and, and overcome these things. So I, in a way I felt lucky, very lucky to have had the opportunity to have played a professional cricket, B for England and Lancashire for such a long time, having made great mates and having a great run, really. So I was very, very fortunate. But I, I, I you know, I, I played with some injury problems that eventually got the better of me. In 2005, you became a commentator for Sky Sports. How did that come about and do you enjoy it? Yeah, we have a great time. Um, so I finished in 2002 and uh, commentated a bit for Channel 4 in the summer months, did a bit of writing and other stuff in the winter, and then all the cricket went to Sky in 2005. So I had the opportunity to join, uh, and I've been commentating with them since. 
And it's been great fun. You know, people like David Lloyd, Nasser Singh, David Gower, Ian Botham, Michael Holding, they've been a, the core uh, of the group that I've been involved with. And more recently, Rob Key, Mark Butcher, these guys have, have come along as well. Uh, Bob Willis there, who who passed away a couple of years ago, very sadly. So it's been a good, great bunch of guys, good fun to commentate with, good fun to work with, great fun to travel with. We like to think we commentate and, and cover the game well, but that's for others to say, not me. Um, and so you combine a bit of fun with a bit of, you know, I wouldn't say it's hard work, but, you know, it's work and you try and do it as well as you can. Um, what is your favourite thing about commentating? I think the travel. I still enjoy the travel. I've always enjoyed travel, although in the last year since COVID, it's become <laughs> trickier, bubbles and quarantines and COVID tests and all this kind of thing. So actually, travel has been put on the back burner for some time now. Uh, but travel is one of the great things, going to all these fantastic places where cricket is played, New Zealand, West Indies, India, Pakistan, fantastic places to go. Um, and then the colleagues that you work with, um, as I've said, they're all great fun and good mates. And thirdly, doing something you enjoy. You know, I, I've always loved the game. I still love watching the game. And I get the opportunity to have a job in in an area that I really enjoy. I never get up thinking, oh, no, I wish I wasn't going to work today. I always get up looking forward to the day, looking forward to watching the cricket, talking about the cricket, writing about the cricket. So that's a very, if you can find a job that you enjoy, that is the golden ticket, really. We spoke to Bumble a few weeks ago and we asked him some quick fire questions about his Sky Sports colleagues. Can we ask you the same questions, please? You can. I don't, I don't know what the questions are, but you can ask them. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you take on a night out? Probably Bumble. I've known him a long time. Uh, known him since I was 15. He's got a great sense of humour. We also like the same kind of things, pubs and dodgy curry houses. So we'd probably go down Soho and have a, a beer and a curry. You are stuck on a desert island for a month. Who do you want with you and why? I'd take Nasser Hussain because he'd take himself off to the furthest corner of the desert island, make sure he was nowhere near me and he would leave me alone. <laughs> Who is the funniest? Rob Key's probably got a great sense of humour and Bumble. Who is the most intelligent? The most intelligent, blimey. Um, of, the, of the people in our crew, I would say Mark Butcher has got a very sharp intelligence. You have gotten a fight. Who do you want to back you up? <laughs> Who do I want to back me up? I think I'd take NASA. He's 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 pretty tough, I think. Who would be the who would be last to get their round of drinks in at the bar? Nick Knight. Who is the worst driver? Who is the worst driver? Well, I don't think Ebony drives yet. I might be wrong. She might have passed her test now, but I don't think Ebony drives. She usually gets a taxi 
to, to the grounds or gets a driver. So because she hasn't passed her test, I'm assuming she would be, but maybe she'd take umbrage at that. I don't know. You have to travel the world with someone. Who who do you not want it to be with and why? Oh, blimey, that's a that's a tricky question. Um <laughs> I, I'm going to pass on that one. There's there's not one person in our crew that I don't enjoy working or travelling with. There are four different types of cricket. Test match, one day, 2020 and the 100. Which of them is your favourite and why? I think test match cricket at its best, you cannot beat it. The best test match will be any other form of the game. Equally, you can get some pretty bad test matches. And the great thing about T20 and the 100, if, if it's a bad game, it's over quickly. But test match cricket at its best, like in 2005 or something, that's hard to beat. So we've got a question from a listener who's got in touch with us after about questions. This is quite a tough question. I do apologise. Three, <laughs> three questions in one. And this is from Matthew Cleave. Athers, what are your thoughts on who should replace Ian Watmore as ECB chairman? What direction should the successor take? And if you were given the job, would you fancy it? Blimey. Um, it's a very tough job. Um, and I'm not entirely sure I'm qualified to do it. I, I, I've, I've been pretty critical of Ian Watmore. And I, I wrote some quite hard pieces in the last couple of weeks and I don't enjoy writing those kind of things, but I, I felt on on the back of England pulling out of Pakistan that something needed to be said because it, I thought it was a, a bad decision and badly handled. Um, but it is a tricky job because you've got to keep all the counties happy. You've got to find a structure that works. You've got to uh, make sure England fit into the kind of global structure of cricket as well. Really tricky job. The biggest thing, I think, at the moment for whoever takes that job is to find a structure that works, trying to fit together four formats of the game now with 100, which is a fourth format, trying to fit those together in a way that works for spectators, for players, for broadcasters, for commercial partners. That is a really tricky thing, but it's got to be done because it's not working at the moment. What are you, Ash's um, predictions? Oh, well... I think the starting point is you look if you look at the whole history of the game, England don't win in Australia very often. Since the Second World War, they won in 54-55, Not very often. So it's a handful of times. And so the starting point is that it's really hard to win in Australia for an England team. So I wouldn't say England start favourites on that basis. And it's not the strongest England team that we can take because there's no Ben Stokes, there's no Jofra Archer, two cricketers who would make a huge difference, in my opinion. Equally, it's not the greatest Australian team that I've seen either. You know, we talked before about what a great team Australia were in the 1990s. I don't think this is as good an Australia team as that. They've got some good batsmen, Warner, Smith, Labashane, and those fast bowlers are excellent, Cummins, uh, Hazelwood and Stark. But they have some weaknesses in that side as well. So 
I don't think England go without hope, but they're not favourites. And I think Australia will win, I don't know, with a margin of two games, say 3-1 or something. If you could have dinner with three people, who would they be and why? Woo, three people. Who would they be and why? Well, I love my film, so I'd have to somewhere in there have have somebody to do with film. Um, I don't know. I might have Sophia Coppola, who's a film director, because she'd talk about her dad as well. So you've got that whole sweep of of film going back to the great Godfather films. Um, I love my sport, so I might have Alex Ferguson there to talk about leadership and management, and I'm a great Manchester United fan. Um, and I love my books, so I'd have to have an author there. Um, I don't know who, which author would I like to have there. Michael Lewis, who's a great non-fiction writer. Um, so there you go. Off the top of my head. Something to do with books, something to do with film and something to do with sport. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Mike. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you thank you absolutely fantastic boys and it's it's so nice to speak to you and see you um putting these podcasts together it's fantastic work that you're doing and keep up with it thank you so much to everyone who listens to our podcast please could you leave us a review if you listen via apple podcast this takes less than a minute to do, but it the really TWS helps to grow Sports our podcast, podcast and combines autism noticed. and sport. So as soon this as this episode is finished, by make sure you leave us that review. Each week, Thank they you. interview famous sportsmen yes, and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows. What happens away from the field of play and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Please go and follow us on social media. On our Facebook group, we'll be hosting a regular sports quiz, give you updates about our podcast, and even have prize giveaways. Just search TWS Sports Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to follow us. Thank you. I just wanted to give a shout out to the Daily American Podcast. This is another great podcast where Dan interviews people from around the world who have very interesting stories of struggle in life, struggles in life, overcoming challenges and battling through tough times. So please go and check out the Daily American Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.
Podcast Network.